Well, church, tune in, grab your Bibles with me, and turn to the Gospel of John. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you joined us. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John. It's our practice here at this church just to work our way through the book verse by verse and to hear what God is saying to us, to seek to understand and apply it. So let me encourage you to keep your Bible open to the Gospel of John chapter 8 and follow along. Listen carefully to what you're hearing from here and test what you're hearing to make sure that it's consistent with what God is saying in the Scriptures. I think it's, I don't think it's difficult uh, to say this morning that the world is a mess. Is that fair to say? But it's not unique. It's not like it became a mess last year. It's, it's been this way for a long time. God created the world good in the very beginning without conflict, without envy or sorrow or sickness or death or war. It was good. It was good until Satan came in and tempted and convinced Adam and Eve that God was not good when he convinced them that to really live, to really know joy and happiness, they needed to be in charge. They needed to be the ones who were their own gods deciding what's right and wrong for themselves. And so they believed the lie, they took the bait, and they rejected God and his good rule so that they could self-rule. But it wasn't long until they found out that what they had been fed was not true, but a lie. Things didn't improve. Things didn't get better. They got worse. And in that decision to reject God, humanity, because Adam is our representative, humanity fell into darkness. Not just Adam and Eve, but all of humanity fell into darkness. And we, as a human race, lost our way. But scripture's clear, even a fallen humanity still bears the image of God. We've been made in his image. And so, like a shoulder that's out of joint, our longings that we experience day to day, our thirsts that we know day to day, are a desire ultimately for the life that God has created us for, the life with God, to know God and follow him and to love him. But again, the problem is, is that as long as we are in darkness, Humanity cannot find our way back to the life that we were created for. We might look around and say, well, hold on. It's not that bad, is it? I mean, we've, we've managed to put spacecrafts on Mars. We have developed life-saving medical procedures. We've, we've developed these little supercomputers that we can fit in our pockets. I mean, it looks like progress, right? Maybe it's just a matter of time. But despite any appearance of progress, Ecclesiastes tells us there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything, new, is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new? No, nah, it was already here long ago. It was here before our times. In other words, our efforts to make progress and, and to make it back to the life that we were created for All of our efforts, all of our striving as humanity is like running on a treadmill. We work up a sweat, we're running, (laughs) but we're not getting anywhere. We might have the semblance of progress, but we still have conflict. We still have sickness, we still have sorrow, and we still have that stubborn problem that we all must face, the problem of death. 
nothing new under the sun. So what are we to do? How can we find our way out of the darkness? How can we find our way back into the life and the joy that we are longing for, that we were created for? How can we find our way back? In our text today, in John 8, Jesus is going to make a very bold claim. He likes these bold claims, and he's right to make them. In John 8, verse 12, he's going to say, I am the light of the world. Thomas Edison can invent light bulbs, our smartphones can glow, but those are just artificial lights. Jesus is saying something very different. He's saying, I am the light of the world. He's claiming to be the only light, the only one who can lead us out of darkness into the life that we're all longing for. But here's the question that we have to wrestle with this morning. Is that true? Do you believe that? Is Jesus really the light? Why is he the light? That's the question we want to consider this morning. Is it true that Jesus is the light of the world? That's the question the text raises for us to answer this morning. So let's turn our attention to John chapter 8. Now, if you look at your text in front of you, uh, you'll notice that there's something that we need to address even before we get into the text of God's word. Uh, At the very beginning of chapter 8, there's a title that says, The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, 11. Maybe you've noticed that before as you read your Bible. What's going on there? Why does the translation, why do our translations include that? Well, in regards to the Bible, our church's statement of faith says this. We believe the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. The key word is divinely inspired. In 2 Timothy, we get that idea from 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, where Paul teaches that scripture, God's word, is inspired. It's a word that means literally God breathed. So as the apostles wrote the original manuscripts of the New Testament, God was carrying them along such that the words of Scripture are God's words. 2 Peter 1.21. Now we know that the New Testament was originally written in the language of Greek. The first printed Greek New Testament was published right after the invention of the, the printing press in 1516 by a man named Erasmus. And that, was, that kind of began this, uh, kind of the beginning of, of, of translations uh, in, into other languages. Before then, before 1516, the manuscripts were carefully handwritten copies of the original. And what I mean by original is when, when John wrote, penned to papyrus, the Gospel of John. We don't have the originals, which is probably a good thing, so we don't worship them. We don't have those originals, but we have over 5,000 Greek ancient manuscripts existent today. You can go to museums and see them today. And what's interesting about that is when you're asking the question about historicity, how do we know this is a historical document? There is no other ancient document that comes close to the abundant wealth of manuscript evidence that we have for the New Testament. Nothing comes anywhere close. 
to the quality and number and within the date of original authorship of the manuscript evidence. So using a discipline known as textual criticism, we, what we do is we look at all the manuscripts that we have in the Greek that have survived in order to know what John originally wrote. The question at hand this morning is, was this story in 753 to 811, the story of the, the woman caught in adultery, the question is, was that original in John's gospel? When John wrote the gospel, did he include that in the original manuscript? Most likely, he did not. Let me give you four reasons, among others, why that's the case. Number one, uh, the story is missing from all other Greek, ancient Greek manuscripts up until the 5th century. So up, if you go to the ancient Greek, Greek manuscripts, there are, there's no mention of this story until the 5th century. You'll see that in the footnote of your ESV translation. Number two, when the story does show up in some of the older ancient manuscripts, it shows up in different places in John's gospel. And sometimes it's even placed in Luke's gospel. So it's like you can see the, you can see the scribes trying to figure out where do we put this story. Third, the early church fathers don't mention the story of the woman caught in adultery. In fact, when you look at their commentary on John or their sermons on John that survived today, they simply move from chapter 752 right into 8 verse 12. And that brings us to the fourth reason. The story itself of the, the, the woman caught in adultery actually interrupts the natural flow of John's gospel. So in other words, last week we ended in John 752 when there was this division about Jesus. The last verse says, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Then you skip over to chapter eight, verse 12, and then Jesus answers that. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. So for those reasons, it seems like this story that's well known was not a part of John's original gospel. Now, I understand that having this conversation that we're having right now may make some people feel uncomfortable or nervous because they fear that this conversation might actually undermine our confidence in God's word. What else is not there? Um, but I actually think the opposite's the case. The reason I want to talk to you about this as one of your pastors this morning is because I think it's good for us to know why this title is there. And I actually think that it should build and strengthen our confidence that what you're holding in your hand is the very words of God. One reason that translations include this story uh, in the text with footnotes is to show transparency. They want to show you why they don't think it's there in the original text. They're, in other words, they're not, the, the translations are not trying to cover something up. Nothing to see here. No, they're just saying, here it is. And here's why we're not including it, why we don't think it is part of the original text. John 8 and Mark 16 are the two main places in the New Testament where we see a larger chunk that we, are, we, we doubt that it was there in the original manuscript. Um, most all other manuscript variants are actually small, trivial, grammatical, or trivial misspellings that are obvious. And, and, and here's the point. None of those variants actually change our theology. None of them are a threat to what we believe as Christians today. And so given the abundant manuscript evidence that we have and the overwhelming agreement that those ancient manuscripts have, we can and we should praise God that he is both inspired 
his word and preserved it so that what you're holding in your hands this morning, you can know with confidence it's God's word. Praise God. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, our aim here at First Baptist is to preach not what the opinions of man is or what I think, but the very words of God. We want to preach the inspired and errant word of God. We bank our lives on the word of God being true. And so it matters because God's word has authority over our lives. It has every right to tell us what to do. So what do we do with a well-known story like that of the woman caught in adultery? A story that's loved for good reason by many. A story that I would add very likely is historical. I think it probably happened. But I'm, I don't think that it was originally included in John's gospel. So what do we do with it? What am I, as one of the preachers here, supposed to do with this text? Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to read to you 753 to 811. I'm going to read to you the story of the woman caught in adultery. I'm going to make a few comments about it. But what I, what I want to show you is, is that the, the ideas that are communicated in this story actually are a really good illustration of other truths that the, the inspired word of God actually teach. There's other places in the scripture that support what we see in this story. So it actually serves like a good illustration for us. You with me? All right. So let's look at the text. 753. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let me just make a few uh, observations from what we see here. First of all, notice that Jesus does not water down or sweep under the carpet her sin. In other words, he doesn't look at her and say, hey, guys, listen, it was between two consenting adults. There's nothing wrong here. Let's just move on. He doesn't say that. He acknowledges that what she had done was sin. Adultery, we know from God's law, uh, is a sin. It violates God's law. And Jesus actually upholds the demands of God's law. He upholds God's law, but second observation is this. He doesn't condemn her. He upholds the law, and yet he doesn't condemn her. In verse 5, these Pharisees come to Jesus, and they point out that in the law of Moses, there's the death penalty. The death penalty is demanded for her adultery. And what they're, what they're quoting is this idea from Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. You can read about it later. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says, if a man is found, that's a key idea there, if it's found, you have to be caught in the act. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. So this penalty was very likely not carried out very often or at all because it required that the act had to be 
found. You had to catch them in the act. And it's difficult to do that. Now, it'd be painful to put yourself into this woman's shoes in this story. But I think another observation is that it doesn't seem like they're out to get her. She's, she's more of a pawn in what they're after. And we get that from verse 6. In verse 6, it's clear that they're not after her, they're after Jesus. They said this to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. So they're trying to trap Jesus. In other words, they know that if Jesus picks up a stone and begins to uh, enact the death penalty, that he's going to be in trouble with Rome. Because at this point in history, Rome was the only one who had the right to enact the death penalty. You can see that in John 18. But if he, as an act of mercy, uh, lets her go, then they can accuse Jesus of not upholding the law of Moses. So they're setting this trap for Jesus. What's he going to do? And Jesus' answer is brilliant. Verse 7, let him, who's without stone, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Uh, now, this verse um, is often misunderstood. So it requires a, a, one comment. Our culture assumes that if you point out anybody's sin, you're automatically judgmental. Don't judge me, right? That's kind of the golden rule. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that you have to be without sin. You have to be perfect in order to point out anybody's sin. Or else we would have no justice or courts or church. or That's not what he's saying. Um, what he's actually doing is he's saying, okay, you want to talk the law? You're going to use the law to trap me? You think you know the law? Let's talk about the law then. And in verse 7 is actually a quotation of the law. Deuteronomy 13.9 says, the person who witnessed the sin, he should be the first one to throw the stone. Jesus didn't witness this. They're the ones who claim they witnessed it, so Jesus turns the law on them. And says, you, okay, you, you throw the first stone then. But that requires that A, they witnessed it, B, that they were not part of that, of that, of that um, sin. They're trying to trap Jesus with the law, but here's the deal. Jesus knows the law better than them. You know why? Because as God, he gave the law. <laughs> so he turns the table on them and traps them. The law also called for the woman and the man to be put to death. Deuteronomy 22. It's not just the woman. It says the law says if you find, if they're caught, then the man and the woman both should be put to death. Which raises a very important question in this story. Where's the man? All these details together, it becomes clear that they didn't care about justice. All they were trying to do was trap Jesus and get rid of him. And after a while, that becomes clear not only to them, but also the crowd that's watching this. They demand the law be followed, but they were breaking the very law that they demanded Jesus to follow. And they knew that they were in trouble. And so one by one, they walk away. Jesus is left with the woman. He upholds the law and its demands, and he shows compassion, does not condemn, and forgives her. Neither do I condemn you, the text says. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's an amazing story, right? Many of us love this story. We grew up with this story. And for good reason. But whether or not it actually happened, what I want to say this morning is that the ideas that this story communicate are actually found in other places of Scripture that hold the authority of God's inspired word. So, um, keep your finger in John 8, 
turn ahead a couple of chapters to Romans chapter 8. We're going to state, we're just going to look real briefly at chapter, Romans chapter 8 to show that what you see in this story, this illustration uh, of the woman caught in adultery is actually communicated in Romans 8 as well. Romans 8 verses 1 through 4. Here Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation. The very thing that happened between Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you, he says. But notice in Romans 8 how God does it. How is it that God doesn't condemn sinners who are worthy of condemnation because of their sin? He doesn't do it by sweeping sin into the carpet. He doesn't do it by watering down the standard. Jesus upholds the demands of the law by fulfilling the law. He doesn't condemn us because he takes the condemnation himself that our sins deserve. That is how he upholds the demands of the law and he shows mercy at the same time. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You hear the echo of that when Jesus says, go and sin no more. That's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You take the, if you're not in Christ Jesus, you are already condemned. But if you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation from God. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ, this is the good news, the glorious good news of Christianity. Don't assume that you're good enough. If you think, well, how, how can I be right with God? Don't assume that it's, it's a sliding scale and that somehow you're good enough because you're not as bad as the person sitting next to you. That it's not how it works. God is holy, and he demands perfection for us to be reconciled with him. And because God is holy, the only way, that, mean, that means because God is holy, the only way for us to be reconciled with him is not to sweep our sin under the carpet, not to water down the standards of his law. The only way for us to be right with him is to have our sin removed, taken away. And that's why Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Jesus, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man, lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. So that when he died on the cross, he was not dying for his own sin. He was dying on the cross as a substitute in our place, bearing the condemnation that our sins deserve, the righteous wrath of God that our sins deserve. He died, they put him in a grave, and on the third day he rose again, showing that his work of redemption is complete. There's nothing more that we can do to add to that work of redemption other than to receive it by grace through faith. So friends, if you're not yet a Christian, I plead with you and urge with you to turn away from your sin and to trust in Christ because in him, there is no condemnation from God. 
That's the only way. And God is calling you to himself that through his word this morning, to trust in him. Church, that is the good news that we all need. We were even reminded this weekend at the, at the Evangelism Weekend that we never graduate from the gospel. We need, as Christians, to be reminded of this good news every day and live out that truth. But if, if this is true, it's the best news in the world because it has eternal implications. And when we look around, we recognize there are, there are many religions that claim to be a light that are showing a path to be right with God. There's many paths that will promise life and happiness and joy. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 I am the light of the world. So how, it brings us back to our question that we want to ask this morning. Is that true? How do we know that Jesus is the light? Because if he is the light, that means there's a rejection of every other path, every other light that is claiming this will lead you to joy, this will lead you to life, this will lead you to happiness. He is the light. How do we know that's true? Look again at God's word, John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of the world. I am not of the world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's keep in mind where we're at in the Gospel of John. In one sense, John 5, 6, 7, and 8 really go together as a unit. 
And what we've seen so far is that in chapter 6, God provided manna, just as God provided manna in the wilderness, in chapter 6, God multiplies bread, declaring, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. In the Old Testament, just as God provided water from a rock to feed his, to, to, to quench the thirst of his people in the wilderness, in chapter 7, during the Feast of Booths, during the water ceremony, Jesus stands up in verse 37 and cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In other words, he is the living water who satisfies. As God in the Old Testament led his people out of Egypt into the promised land by his presence with a pillar of fire by night, in the same way Jesus says in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And notice he says, I'm not a light. I'm not a light, uh, one light among many, but I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. In other words, it's the light that he is that leads to life. This is what we saw in the prologue of John, John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, all things were made through him, that's Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, that's Jesus, and the life was the light of men. So as you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see signposts over and over, all these signposts. And these signposts point to uh, a Christ, a Messiah, a Redeemer. Jesus in John 5.39 said, all that's written in the Old Testament bears witness about me. So all these Old Testament signposts and promises are given to God's people in the Old Testament to provide hope. Those signposts are given to the people in the Old Testament to prepare them for the coming Messiah. And so with Jesus fulfilling these signs and fulfilling these promises, all of these things pointed to, we might expect that these Jews would be the first people to say, look, we've been looking for this all our life. He's fulfilling all these signs. He's the Savior. We might expect a revival to break out. But that's not what happens. Verse 13, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Your testimony is not valid. Your, your testimony is not trustworthy. Part of what's going on is they're, they're looking for his source of authority. Now, if I ask one of my boys, uh, hey, go tell your brother to come inside. It's time for dinner. Uh, and so he goes out and tells his brother, you got to stop playing, you got to come in for dinner. Well, the one playing might say, hold on, who do you think you are telling me to come in for dinner? Well, the brother might say, dad said. Dad authorized me to boss you around. And he'd be right. It's kind of what they're doing with Jesus. The law of Moses required multiple witnesses in capital cases in order to validate a crime. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 17. That's what they're kind of saying to Jesus about his testimony, about himself. And what's interesting is that Jesus already provided multiple witnesses about his identity in chapter 5. John the Baptist, his miracles, the law, everything was, these were witnesses that were showing that he is who he said he is. But after Jesus makes this bold claim in verse 12, I am the light of the world, well, the Pharisees want more. They demand to know who gave you the authority to say that. Because even when we, read, even when we heard from Isaiah 42, 
when our sister Dawn read that text, God refers to himself as the light who will open the eyes of the blind and set the captive free. So when they hear Jesus say, I'm the light of the world, they, they know what he's saying. Hold on, who do you think you are? He's already provided witnesses, but Jesus answers their claim anyway, or their question anyway. Look at verse 14. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Don't just gloss over that. It's, it's easy to miss, but it's important. He's saying the reason, Jesus is saying the reason my testimony is true, the reason that I am the light of the world and that statement is true is because of my relationship with God the Father. How do I know, how do we know that he is who he says he is? How do we know that he is the light of the world? Because of his relationship with God the Father. He is one with God the Father. Twelve times, at least twelve times in verses 12 through, four, uh, through, 20, through, uh, 12 through 29, Jesus is going to say, this is where I came from. He's going to talk about who sent him. And he's going to talk about where he's going, where I came from, who sent me, where I'm going. He came from God the Father. He was sent by God the Father, authorized to speak his word, to complete his mission on God's timetable. And he's going to God the Father. <laughs> In other words, what Jesus is saying is, is that his authority comes from the fact that he's one with the Father. His authority comes from the fact that he is God. Verse 24, unless you believe that I am. Our translation adds the he, but in the Greek, there's no he. In the Greek, it reads, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am the God who says I am, you'll die in your sins. Jesus speaks as God. And he claims this because there's no higher authority to attest to. If you're God, you can't, you can't point to somebody else as a higher authority to validate your claim. You are the highest claim, right? I have a flashlight in my hand, right? Um, imagine that this room was pitch dark. Imagine that you were lost in darkness and you'd never seen light and I have a flashlight. If I have a flashlight and I'm trying to explain to you what it is and show you what light is, I would not say to you, okay, this is a flashlight and light is electromagnetic radiation that can be detected by your eye. I wouldn't try to show you what light is by telling you that. You know what I would do? Turn it on. That's light. That's light. And that's what Jesus is doing. Verse 14, he's, that's what he's, he's arguing. And remember how John's gospel introduces Jesus in chapter 1. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God's Word, capital W, that was with God. He's distinct from God the Father, 
and yet he is God from the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. That's how John 1 introduces Jesus. So don't miss that. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is the creator of all things. So who can Jesus point to and say, well, yeah, Mike was there. He, 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 can, he can testify. When I was creating all things before the beginning of time, he was there. Can you say that, Mike? No. Who, who here can say that? Who is, who is a witness to that? No one. But Jesus was there. God the Father was there. God the Holy Spirit was there. And so he attests himself as the highest authority of that claim. And so he comes on the scene as the light of the world. He's turning on the flashlight of God, so to speak, saying, I'm here. That's what Jesus came to do. John 1.14, Jesus came as God in the flesh. Why? John 1.18, that he might make the Father known. Or as Hebrews 1 verse 3 puts it, Jesus is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the light of the world. He is the radiance. This is why John 14, verse 9, Jesus can look at Philip and say, listen, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why? Because he's showing God. Turns the flashlight on. So why do the Pharisees claim that his testimony is not true? The light is right in front of them. The light of the world that the Old Testament was pointing forward to is right in front of them. Why don't they see it? Jesus answers that question in verse 15. Here's why. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. What's he mean by judge according to the flesh? Well, in the scriptures, flesh can point to our sinful nature. And so judging according to the flesh could mean that we see, you know, we, we're affected by our sin. Uh, it could also, you know, judging according to the flesh, could also mean that they just see Jesus' humanity. You know, he, this is Joseph and Mary's boy. They can't see anything beyond that. But here, in this context, I think that they're rejecting Jesus. What, 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 what judging according to the flesh means is that they're rejecting him because of their worldly agenda. Jesus comes with an agenda. They have a different agenda. Their agendas don't match up, and so they get rid of Jesus. They can't see it. This is what Jesus said back in chapter 5, verse 43. I have come in my Father's name with his agenda, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, in other words, endorsing your particular hobby horse, endorsing your particular agenda for the Messiah, then he says you will receive him. Friends, the point is, is that it's possible for us to become so engrossed with our ideas about religion or about the Messiah or about who Jesus is that are drifting away from what the Bible actually says that we become blind to who God is as revealed in scriptures. One writer notes, 
Recent generations have provided numerous examples of judging according to the flesh. In the 19th and 20th centuries, proponents of the so-called Christian humanism rejected the Jesus of the Bible because they argued that modern life has disproved the supernatural. Theirs was a scientific agenda, and they rejected Jesus from that perspective. The socialists demanded a class warfare Jesus. The capitalists demanded a free market Jesus. The racists demanded an ethnocentric Jesus. The patriots demanded a nationalist Jesus. Today, worshipers of a certain lifestyle that they want to live demand a mystical Jesus who makes no demands on their life and teaches no doctrine. The problem, he says, is that the biblical Jesus gives offense to each of these worldly perspectives, which is why people with such agendas end up rejecting the truth that Jesus reveals in Scripture. You might think, well, that was written yesterday, right? Because that sounds a lot like 2020. That was written 13 years ago. The human heart doesn't change. Friends, if our agendas can blind us from seeing the truth of who Jesus is, we want something so bad that we impose that agenda upon Jesus. We want him to be king, but we want him to be king our way, to do our bidding. If that's possible in our hearts as religious people, the Pharisees are religious, we need to slow down. We need to do some serious self-assessment. We need to ask God to search our hearts. Is this true of me? Am I imposing my agenda on Jesus or am I letting Jesus be who he is and worshiping him as he is? We need the godly input of other friends. Do you see this in me? Friends, what's your agenda? What's your agenda for Jesus? What do you prioritize, value, and treasure? Such that you treasure it so, what you you treasure will dictate how you live. What do you treasure? Where do you go to look for life and happiness? Money? Success? The praise of others? Comfort? Friends, when we rejected God, when humanity rejected God in our sin, we were rejecting the God who is life. We were rejecting the God who is light. And the Apostle Paul notes that the consequence of us dropping his agenda for our own, the consequences of us trading God for an idol, is that our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools. Romans 1, 21 and 22. And so separated from God by our sin, It's like our our shoulders dislocated. Our hunger is still there. We're we're discontent. We're we're thirsty. We want the life that God created us for. God has put eternity in our hearts. And so we're looking, we're looking, we're looking. But we're groping, left to ourselves, we're groping in the darkness. We're looking for life, but our search is futile. That's what Jesus warns as he does in verse 21. 
Verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me. They've already rejected Jesus, so what does he mean when he says that you're going to seek me? Well, when he says, I'm going away, he's talking about his coming death. Death is his path back to the Father. He's going to die, he's going to rise again, he's going to ascend back to the Father. But it's not suicide like these Pharisees suspect. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the light of the world. I am the one that you're looking for, and you are rejecting me. And if you don't see this, I'm going to go away, and you're going to continue seeking me. In other words, you're going to keep looking for life. You're going to keep looking for the Messiah, and you will not find it. Why? Because I'm him. There's urgency in what he's saying to them and to us. I'm not one of many lights. I'm not one of many paths. I am the light of the world. And when I'm gone, you'll seek me and you will not find me. Verse 21, you will die in your sin. Where I am going to the Father, you cannot come. Why can they not come? Because God is holy. And without Christ, their sin remains. Friends, I pray, I pray that in, in this warning that we see God's heart. I pray that we see his goodness. Because he is issuing this as a warning to us now so that we can have life. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came that we might have life. If you are alive today and you're hearing these words from Jesus, that's his mercy. That's his goodness. You can still choose to follow him. Choose to follow him. We told God to buzz off so we could live our life how we wanted. And even after we treated him with such contempt and dishonor, even then... Christ came for us to be the light of the world, to show us the way, to be the way. Our agendas can be worldly and wicked, but his agenda is good and true. That's what he means in verse 15 when he says, I judge no one. You might say, well, that's a contradiction. He says later on, I'm going to judge. No, what he means when he says, I, don't, I judge no one, it's not, he's not saying that he doesn't judge. He says in verse 26, I have much to judge. His point in saying, I judge no one, in this context is, I don't judge like you judge. I don't judge according to the flesh. I make a judgment that is true. It's reliable. It's consistent with reality. Why? Verse 16, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. If I say something, it's true. Why? Because the Father, it's coming from the Father. If I judge, it's right. Why? Because it's coming from the Father. I and the Father are one. Okay, so you got, the, you got the Pharisees' agenda, you got Jesus' agenda, and they're different. Well, what is Jesus' agenda then? What did God send Jesus to do? John, four, John 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light. Why? So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's why he came. 
John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came, why? That you might have life and have it abundantly. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's why he came. That's his agenda. The glory of God and the rescuing of sinners. Three times in verse 21, twice in verse 24, Jesus warns the reader about dying in their sin, dying in their sin, dying in their sin. This last year, we've seen how Satan wants to get the world riled up about lots of things. Politics, masks, vaccines, ethnicity, the economy, and on and on and on and on. And he wants us to argue about things like this that are important. They are important. But he wants us to argue about these things and to make them ultimate so that we lose sight of what is most important. That which is eternal. There's something worse than dying in poverty. There's something worse than dying without a friend, as painful as those things can be. That something something worse is dying in our sin. Jesus is clear in verse 24, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In his love for God the Father, in his love for sinners like us, he came, he was sent. That is his agenda, the glory of God and the rescue of sinners. Is that your agenda? That's why he came. That was his heartbeat. The glory of God and the rescue of sinners. Is that your heartbeat? Or are you trying to impose a different agenda on Jesus? In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper writes, it's a long quote, bear with me. You may not care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends and a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have that, you'd be satisfied, even without God. That is a tragedy in the making, he writes. Three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80 years old. She was single all her life. She lived to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. While serving, the brakes in their car gave out. The car went over the cliff, and they were gone, killed instantly. And so I asked my church, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades almost after almost all their American counterparts have retired and thrown their lives away on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is glory. He goes on to read from a magazine what tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement, this magazine article says, they took early retirement from their jobs. 
in the Northeast five years ago when they were 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that dream. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to get an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection, and look at my boat. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. End quote. We started this morning by asking the question that the text raised. How can we know that Jesus is the light of the world? We know because of his relationship with God the Father. He's one with the Father. He's from the Father. He was sent by the Father, and he returned to the Father. But the Pharisees didn't see it. At this point, they're blind. But look at verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man then you will know that I am he. Then you will know. The idea of being lifted up refers to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus' testimony is true, not only because he's one of the Father, we know that that testimony is true because he died and he rose from the dead. We know the Bible is true. We believe Christianity is right because Jesus got up from the dead. That is the linchpin of Christianity. He didn't raise from the dead, we're all wasting our time. But if he did raise from the dead, and he did, then his testimony is true. He can lead us to the life that we long for because he's the light of the world came from the Father, sent by the Father, he went back to the Father, but he didn't go back to the Father just to be by himself. He went back to the Father saying, I'm going to take you with me. You trust in me, you are united to Christ by faith. Where he goes, you go. And if he goes back to the Father, he'll take you with him. There's a a powerful contrast and you hear him say, If you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Then you look at him in John 14, and he says, but if you do trust in me, behold, I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may also be. It's a matter of faith, a matter of trust. So how can we keep from drifting? We feel the pull of the world, the, the, the American dream, a nice house, a nice car, nice kids, a nice retirement. We want that. The world tells us, spends billions of dollars to get us to believe that. How can we keep from drifting into that and wasting our life? God gives us each other. God gives us the church. That's why we have church membership. That's why we have members meeting right after this. He gives us each other, a spiritual family that is covenanted together, where we promise to remind each other, to encourage each other, to warn each other, and to help each other make it until until the end so that we don't waste our life, that we keep our agenda in line with God's agenda. Remember the illustration or the story of the woman caught in adultery? Put yourself in her shoes for a little bit. Crowds around you, the Pharisees are yelling, 
your sin is on full display. All eyes are on you. You're guilty. And the crowd is deliberating your death penalty. Pause the story. How do you feel? You feel ashamed. You feel scared. You feel embarrassed. You feel angry. You want to crawl in a hole. It's so awful. None of us would want that. But in the same moment, we pause the scene, we look around and we look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees present themselves as the religious elite. They have their, they're presenting themselves as having their life together. They would never do something as awful as this woman has just done. They're respectable. They're successful. The people want to be like them. And so if you had to choose between either being the Pharisee or being the woman in that moment, who would you choose? Most of us would choose the Pharisee. No one wants to be the woman in that moment. But hold on. The Pharisees in that moment are blinded by their pride and their self-righteousness, and Jesus makes it clear if nothing changes, they will die in their sins. But in the end, as painful as it is to be this woman, in the end, the woman is forgiven. She's not condemned. She's reconciled with God. She came to know and trust the God who is the light of this world. And she finds life. Now who do you want to be? At this point in John's gospel, the people are hostile to Jesus. They don't like him. They're rejecting him. They're walking away from him. They're persecuting him. And they're about to put him on the cross. And in that moment, it may seem like God had abandoned Jesus and that his mission had failed. But Jesus makes it clear ahead of time that that is not true. Verse 29, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. He, my friends, if you are in Christ, will not leave you alone. At the end of the day, every path that we follow other than the path of Jesus is a dead end. And the paths that the world offers for life and joy that compete with our affections for Christ, they may look good, they may glitter for a moment, but they will soon fade in the light of the end on the last day. John, who writes this gospel, also wrote the book of Revelation. And he gives us a peek at the end in Revelation 4, verse 11. Jesus is seated on the throne as the king of kings, and all people around him declare this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You are worthy. Do you believe it? It's true. That day is coming. Let's follow Jesus, who is the light of the world, church. Let's pray.